Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar. And I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services. Our guest on the podcast today is New York Times financial columnist and author Ron Lieber. His latest book is called The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make. He is also the author of The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money, and co-author of Taking Time Off, Inspiring Stories of Students Who Enjoyed Successful Breaks from College, and How You Can Plan Your Own. Ron has been the Your Money columnist for the New York Times since 2008. Before coming to the Times, he wrote the Green Thumb Personal Finance column for the Wall Street Journal and was part of the startup team at the paper's personal journal section. He attended Amherst College. Ron, welcome to The Long View. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. I think we have so many topics that we could cover with you, but today we're going to talk about college and and paying for college, which is the subject of your new book. So before we get into the specifics of paying for college, let's spend a bit of time on the college landscape more broadly. How has the pandemic turned colleges and the college experience upside down? Well, I think the way that it has focused the mind for the people who are writing the checks is this, right? If you think about what college is or what college is for, you go to college to get an education. You go to college seeking kinship, right? Trying to find your people, your friends, the mentors who will help you, especially in the early part of your career. And you go to college for the credential. So if you think about all of the things that have been stripped away during this pandemic, and there have been many things for many people in the world of higher education, the education itself is no longer what it once was because the teaching and the learning just isn't the same in a Zoom room. You think about the kinship, right? The friends that you're making, pretty hard to do that when people are scattered about. And so the only thing we have left is the credential. People are still getting to and through college and, you know, roughly the same amount of time as they used to if they're not taking a break. And so the credential is still meaningful, but all of the things that we thought that we were paying for, many of them are gone now. So, you know, is it any wonder that so many people came flooding back in the fall, even though it was probably not the best public health move? You know, a lot of us naturally assume that college students should be you know, pretty adaptable to e-learning and conversely, the youngest students less adaptable. But do college students seem to learn as well online as they would in person? Is is there evidence that some things get lost? Well, so this is a very strange experiment that we're conducting. And we will probably learn a few things about what happened in the classroom and what didn't. But to take a step back, one of the things that was shocking for me when I went out to report the price you pay for college was that the colleges themselves, for all of the academic and research prowess contained therein, do not actually know a lot on a like basic baseline level about whether people learn a damn thing during their four years. Now, you can measure it in science majors, right, or in terms of what somebody might be able to do on a medical school admissions exam, but they don't really know very much about how much people learn. And so how much can we learn about what they did or did not learn during this pandemic? It's complicated. Then again, you know, when you listen to what people say in public, I think they just know intuitively that so much has been stripped away. I mean, the president of Spelman College, uh, the women's college in Atlanta, wrote a searing 
essay in the New York Times about what has been lost, including the learning. Jonathan Zimmerman, a professor at Penn, wrote a history of, of college teaching um, that's called the Amateur Hour, which gives you some sense of how well he felt like he was trained. And you know, he said in the Philadelphia Inquirer, there's just no question um, that so much has been stripped away vis-a-vis -vis the actual learning that goes on. So does it seem like the online learning component is here to stay even after COVID has passed, or will most schools switch back to in-person, in-classroom learning? Well, here's the thing we sometimes forget is that college is a lot of things to a lot of people. My book is about um, traditional aged or what we consider to be traditional aged residential undergraduate education. So teenagers going and staying for four years and then coming out. But for years, really decades, there have been all sorts of innovations now in the way in which an undergraduate education is delivered piecemeal to people attending part-time and increasingly online. So, you know, everywhere from Southern New Hampshire to Arizona State, there are all sorts of innovations that have already stuck. But in terms of the you know, what we consider to be a rite of passage now, the residential undergraduate education, I have real doubts about, you know, whether these professors are going to want to stay in their Zoom rooms once everybody has their jabs. What about the financial implications for higher learning institutions? Some students seem to be opting for cheaper alternatives rather than paying full freight for e-learning. Do you expect that to have lasting financial implications? I think we might see a ticking up of the number of colleges that go out of business, but you know, let's keep a couple things in mind here, right? It is very difficult to kill off a public university or a public college. These institutions have constituencies. They have political constituencies. It's very difficult to close one down. Uh, and if you're talking about the world of you know, private colleges, even the ones that are struggling or have struggled have had near-death experiences, uh, like you know, Hampshire College, for instance, is the most recent one. Alumni tend to come out of the woodwork you know, with checkbooks in hand because you know, everybody wants to be part of something, right? And if your alma mater is an even small part of your identity, you don't want to see it die. So it's actually pretty difficult to kill these places off. And, you know, the other thing I would ask people to consider, right, is that, again, like think about the way that people flocked back to school last fall if they could. Um, people do crave this experience. And it was pretty clear in the spring of 2020 and even in the fall of 2020 that we had not really come up with an adequate replacement for it. And so, you know, to the folks who think that higher education is a bubble and everything's going to go off the rails, all I can say is I am shoveling money into a 529 plan, not just for my 15-year-old, but for my five-year-old. College is considered a non-negotiable for many families, in part because of the higher lifetime earnings associated with a college degree. Everyone's seen that data. Can you run us through that and quantify the value of college from a lifetime earnings perspective? And then also talk about some of the non-financial considerations that people should sort of have in mind when they are thinking about the value of college. Sure. Well, you know, I consider that last part to be in some ways more interesting and theoretically, right, more valuable. Um, you know, the economic data is clear. You know, there's a, you know, roughly, you know, million dollars over a lifetime, you know, benefit in terms of your income you know, for going to college versus not going to college. But 
that's an average, right? And none of us are exactly average. And, you know, if you come from a position of privilege and connections, you know, not going to college may not hurt you. Um, What we are finding generally is that the income gap, right, the premium that comes from attending college, it's not so much that the people who go to college are doing way better than they did 10 or 20 years ago. It's the people on the other end, the people who don't go, who are losing ground, and those folks lost even more ground during the pandemic. So that's the sort of economic side, the income side of it. But I'm interested in, you know, many of the other things that economists and others are still having trouble measuring, right? Like, what is the return on friendship? What is the return on mentorship? And, you know, those things are are harder to measure, but, you know, I think in some ways might be more important if you consider that we're not just investing in the life of a mind, but also a lifetime of happiness, hopefully. We're going to shift to the topic of picking a school in a minute. But wanted to touch on another topic before we did that, and it's a topic that wasn't central to your book, but college isn't necessarily the right choice course for every child. Do you have any advice for parents weighing that decision, college versus some other course of study like a trade school after high school? Sure. I mean, college is a tremendous waste of money uh, for any 18-year-old who is not sure that they want to be there. And there is no shame in taking a year or two after high school and trying something else. You know, if you've got a kid on your hands who's, you know, an absolute ace salesperson, right? You can have a really satisfying career, you know, in the sales field without a degree, or you can go back and get one later if somebody wants to, you know, wants to make you get one. Uh, This happened with my brother-in-law, who's a, you know, fabulously successful entrepreneur and made a whole bunch of money in the sort of outdoor goods sales space. And he, you know, climbed the ladder for 10 or 15 years until somebody finally said to him, you know what, you need to go do this. And, And he did. And at that point he was ready and sort of shot the lights out academically, right? So you should go to school when you want to and when you're ready. And by forcing kids who are not ready, you know, it's a pretty good way to waste a lot of money and end up with a dropout on your hands. Switching over to picking a school, you wrote that there are three feelings that mark the college selection process, fear, guilt, and snobbery and elitism. So can you talk a little bit about each of them and how they influence choices? Sure. You know, part of what I was trying to do in the book is encourage people to be more emotionally intelligent and also more emotionally honest with themselves. And, you know, when I think about what I hope financial advisors are going to take away from what I've written, you know, I know advisors are always trying to figure out how to have better and deeper and more meaningful conversations with clients. And, you know, I love talking about feelings with my financial advisor. And, you know, I just wish there were more people out there in the financial services world who would look their clients straight in the eye, you know, when they have a couple of kids, you know, with single digit ages and say, you know, what scares you about college and paying for college and, and what's going to happen to your kid? Do you feel guilty about potentially not being able to pay for the whole thing? Do you feel duty-bound to do so because your parents did? And do you realize that it's a very different world here with very different prices from when you ran the gauntlet? And, you know, how does your own snobbery or, or elitism play into what you think the goals should be for your child? 
And, you know, it's uh, uh, Carl Richards, uh, the financial writer, who's probably been on the podcast himself. You know, the way Carl described these things is he said they're sort of conversation bombs, right? So, you know, I hope more than anything, I'm setting off conversation bombs that advisors can help put out and will be happy, uh, you know, with the sort of resulting rubble uh, in their offices after everybody's done talking about it. Frank Bruni wrote a book a few years ago called Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be. The thesis was that successful people come from all different types of colleges and universities and students and their parents should basically kind of calm down and know that their life success doesn't hinge on the school they pick. Do you agree? I do agree. What I wanted to do in The Price You Pay for College was look at one element of, you know, call it the glass half empty view of what Frank wrote about, which, you know, I thought he was 100% right and his book was incredibly reassuring. I just wanted to remind people that for, you know, a tiny percentage of the things that you can do in the world and the places you can do them, they are inhabited by elitists. And sometimes they're inhabited by snobs, right? And so when you go and you look at the data, there's all sorts of kids out there, I don't know, these days who want to become general managers of professional sports teams. That's become much more of a data-driven job than it used to be. And so, you know, you could argue that the, the sort of raw intellectual prowess of the people who go and take those jobs is, is higher than it used to be. And sure enough, you know, they have become the sorts of jobs where 20 or 30 or 50 percent of the people who have them come from the 40 or so undergraduate institutions in America where people have the highest SAT scores. And it is also true for the people who get investment money from Kleiner Perkins or Y Combinator for their startups. It's true for MacArthur Fellows. It's true in all sorts of areas in life and in endeavors. And so, you know, you should just know, right, that like if you've got a 17-year-old on your hands who really wants to be an investment banker and they're trying to decide between Princeton or a full tuition scholarship at Tulane, and Princeton's going to cost $75,000 a year, Goldman Sachs is probably not going to come recruit at Tulane, and they will think that there's something wrong with you if you made that choice. When I've looked at the numbers regarding the financial return on investment for various college outlays, and I know you think that that's sort of a limiting way to look at it, but when I've looked at it before, using students' eventual salary as a proxy for return on investment. The good quality state school comes out looking like a pretty good value, especially for in-state students. Would you say that's true or not so much? I think that's true. And what you'll find in certain states, at least where they make really good data available, um, and this is true in Texas in particular, right? I mean, what you'll find is that, uh, you know, the flagship state school in Austin, which is where, you know, a a lot of kids want to go, doesn't necessarily come out on top in terms of raw income. But, you know, the thing I would encourage people to keep track of, right, is that so much of this money stuff when it comes to outcomes is directly impacted by your course of study, right? I mean, that should go without saying, but you should really take a look. So the thing that is less obvious is that by mid-career, the liberal arts majors tend to catch up with and often surpass the people who majored in computer science, right? So one of the things you have to think about is, 
all right, well, what's going to actually happen to people mid-career? You know, what sort of trajectory might someone with this major be on? And it's the school's job to do a better job of explaining that, and they often do a pretty bad one at that. So, you know, unfortunately, it just means more work for the college shopper and, you know, more research for families who are considering, you know, what the right options are. Um, But, you know, I would encourage people to think about it as expansively as possible. It might be kind of tangled up, but which, in your opinion, should come first? Visiting schools and homing in on the types of situations your child is interested in or figuring out the cost piece? You often hear about students falling in love with a school only to have the parents have to break the news that it's out of reach due to costs. I mean, I would ask parents to consider cost first before hitting the road, but only if you really understand what you are doing. I, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because there are so many otherwise intelligent and sophisticated people who run entities that the two of you would have heard of who show up in my inbox in March and April each year, and they have no idea what has just happen to them. They don't understand that there's a new sort of parallel branch of financial aid, often for affluent people, um, that did not exist when many of us were going to school. They've been sort of run over by a freight train, and they kind of realize that they did it wrong. So don't go sitting your eighth grader down and saying, all right, the rule in this household is great or state, right? I mean, don't go saying stuff like that unless you know exactly how things work, because it is not simple, the way the pricing and the discounting system works in 2021. Well, we want to spend a good amount of time on that because it's such an interesting dimension of your book, the whole idea of merit-based aid. But before we get into that, I want to spend a little bit of time discussing the actual underlying cost of delivering college. You make the point in the book that of the roughly $30,000 per year spent on college per student on average, most of that does go to paying teachers and teaching. And you think that it's kind of a false narrative that amenities or administrative bloat are really the big factors. Can you expound on that? Sure. Um, The people who work at colleges are expensive. They earn more money than average. They earn more money than average because they train longer than lots of other people, right? So economics would suggest that, you know, there would be a reward for that. And these are hard jobs to get, too. Um, So, you know, the professors we know about. Um, Administrators, it is true that there are more administrators per 1,000 undergraduates than there used to be. But I would argue that you know, we get the administrators that we sort of vote for at the ballot box and that we ask for at the bursar's office. You know, as far as the ballot box goes, you know, part of the reason there are more administrators than there used to be is because there are more regulations. There are more regulations because politicians put them into place. And they put them into place because we believe more in equity than we used to as a country, all told, right? So we want our disabled children to have access to these institutions. We want our kids with mental health conditions to have access. We want our daughters to have equal playing time and equal facilities, you know, when it comes time to play college sports. We want someone to answer the phone at 11 o'clock when the computer network is down, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, you know, if we want 
fewer administrators and lower costs. You know, we can make those choices at the ballot box and as consumers, but so far we haven't, right? And I'm not so sure that we should. And then as far as amenities go, um, you know, they're very fun to look at and poke fun at, but they don't actually cost that much. And there are not so many of them that they have real impact on these universities' bottom lines. If the cost of teaching students and paying professors is the key reason college costs have been going higher, why is college inflation so much higher than the general inflation rate? I think you point to declining state funding as a factor. Can you talk about that? Sure. So we should be careful with our terms, right? Because there is the list price, the list prices for private and public, and those have indeed gone to the moon. But then there is the net price, the price that people actually pay after need-based financial aid and these other merit-based discounts. And the net prices have not gone up in a completely obscene way, particularly at the private colleges. Now, public colleges have their own issues because in 2009, 2010, 2011, one of the easiest cuts for state legislatures to make was to the subsidies that went to the undergraduate institutions where those subsidies you know, essentially served to lower tuition artificially. And once you take those away, these state schools have to make it up by raising tuition and often inviting more international students and out-of-state students to come in to pay inflated rates. So that's kind of what's happened at the state school level. Now, you know, in terms of the list price, that keeps going up because the private colleges in particular hope against all hope and reason that they will continue to find sometimes desperate families, you know, who are just willing to write a check to have some place for their semi-troubled kid to go or that, you know, more and more international families will come out of the woodwork. And wow, our higher education institutions breathing a sigh of relief right now about the change in the administration because the country right now will feel more welcome to international students coming to study here as undergraduates than it did four years ago. So we want to get into the logistics of how to pay for college and these various forms of aid and so forth. But I'd like to talk about what to pay, basically how to set a budget for college for your family, given your family finances. Do you have any guidance on how families can figure out sort of what their limits are on how much to pay and what steps that they can take to kind of right size their college by? Well, it starts with knowing what you're shopping for in the first place, right? So, you know, if we go back to this like three-tier definition of college, right? You know, we're going for the education, for the kinship, for the credential. You as a family unit, uh, you, your spouse, if you have one, your ex, definitely, if you have one of those, because that can get complicated. And your kid, you know, you need to sit down and think about, okay, well, what's the goal here, right? Because if the goal is an intense form of learning, right, the life of a mind, then you may want to go to a small liberal arts college, private one, where you will have close contact and access to professors and the small class sizes that make it easier to have good discussions, or maybe an honors program or an honors college at a state university. If what you care about is kinship, making friends, well, you can just plug yourself into a really great Greek system at a state university and maybe not pay as much as you might elsewhere. The credential, well, 
you know, it depends whether you want to become a nurse. You know, all, all nurses are nurses, you know, if they pass their licensing exam, no matter where they went to school. Or if you're searching for some sort of gold-plated sheepskin um, that will grant you entry into Kleiner Perkins and Goldman Sachs and Teach for America. So much depends on what you're shopping for. And figuring that out is how you begin to create a budget. You've also made the point that college costs are increasing at a time we've seen another pretty big change on the personal finance front, namely that we're all increasingly shouldering the costs of our own retirements as pensions fall away. How important is it for parents to determine their total college outlay, looking through the lens of how well set they are for their own retirement and other financial goals? Well, this is the thing that's so hard about it. I mean, let, let's dispense with untrue maxims first, right? There's this old saw that says, you know, you should preference saving for retirement over saving for college because you can't borrow during retirement. So that's inaccurate on its face, right? You can borrow for retirement via a reverse mortgage. So that's just not true. Um, it also suggests that, you know, borrowing for college is necessarily like a good goal. And I'm not sure it is, you know, it depends on the family, right? So the conversation has to start there. Um, and then I think, you know, much depends on the level of confidence you have both about your ability to work into your 60s and also the willingness of someone else to employ or hire you, right? So that's a complicated stew of like personal health projections, generalized happiness, what you think is going to happen to the stock market after a couple of decades of, you know, pretty good performance on average. You know, these are all things that are very difficult to see in a crystal ball, and yet you still have to ask the questions. You wrote at length in the book about some ways that families are trying to reduce their outlays for college. One really popular one right now, or one you certainly hear a lot about, especially during the pandemic, is to spend two years at community college and then finish up at a four-year school. You don't think this is the no-brainer that some make it out to be. Why not? I think the people who teach at community colleges are heroic, um, and I think they provide an incredibly valuable service to all sorts of citizens. If you want to use community college as a sort of money-saving hack, then you need to go in with eyes wide open. You need to find the community college that sends the most people each year to your intended four-year destination. You need an advisor at the community college, and you need an advisor already in place in the admissions office at the intended destination, and you need to check in with those people three times each term, at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end, to make sure that every class you're taking is the right one to make sure that the credits will transfer. Because if everything gets all messed up, you know, it could take you five and a half years to finish. Then you've missed 18 months in the workforce, and you've had a sort of fractured undergraduate experience where you didn't get to establish four years of relationships at either place, right? So, you know, it is, it is not a no-brainer, but, right, if yours is a family that just can't pay $100,000 for the flagship state institution, but you can... Go to community college essentially for free, live at home for a couple of years, and then transfer in. And then you're saving 50%, and that's awesome, right? But you just need to go in with a head of steam and a sort of type A approach to just really nailing the credits and the logistics. 
wanted to turn to financial aid. You wrote in the book that the typical first-year full-time student got a discount of about 53% from the list price in the 2019-2020 school year, and 89% of students got need-based or merit-based aid. So if most families are paying about half of list price, are those discounts coming through need-based or merit-based aid? Well, it gets real confusing here, right? Because the the, the terms get confused and the institutions themselves are sort of cloudy about it. And they do this on purpose, right? I mean, merit aid is sort of a psychological head trip. You pat a teenager on the head and say they are deserving of money because of who they are and how they've performed. At the same time that you do that, you're effectively giving a gold star to the parent. Right. So if you are an institution and money is money, right, whether the family has need or not, you are going to use merit aid to help meet a family's financial need because calling it a scholarship, calling it an academic scholarship is going to make people like you more. And so, you know, to the extent that there are statistical studies and survey research about, you know, how much of this is going to merit aid versus need-based aid, I don't know that it's so meaningful anymore because money is money and coupons are coupons. And hopefully people who are shopping for college are just looking at the bottom line net price cost of attendance and not paying attention to the come-ons and the fancy words they're using for the coupons that they're handing out. So let's delve into merit-based aid a little more. In what situations are schools particularly generous with merit-based aid? You note that the more selective schools tend to be less generous with it. So let's just talk about that as parents are receiving these offers. What should they know about the types of schools that are coming through with the best offers? Yeah, I I mean, we can divide it up into a a minimum of four segments, maybe two for public, two for private. With the private institutions, there are the more selective ones that offer merit aid. You know, these are the Connecticut colleges, the Oberlin's, the McAllister's, the Occidental's, the the Whitman Colleges in Washington, um, USC Tulane Northeastern. These are colleges that, in a variety of ways, attempt to use merit aid to buy themselves more prestige, right? They reward the very best students with money and try to get them to come instead of, you know, going to the Ivy League or Northwestern or something in the hopes that having those kinds of kids around will attract other kids like them who maybe don't need an inducement. Now that everybody offers merit aid, it's a little bit harder for that to work, but now you know, everybody's used to getting it. And so they're looking for it and the schools can't very well take it away. A few segments down in the marketplace, you've got private institutions that are giving merit aid basically to everyone. You know, everybody gets a trophy because the market has come to expect it. And some of them are just doing full on tuition resets, you know, taking their list prices down by ten dollars or $15,000. But now that people know to expect a discount, you know, it's the sort of couponing, like what went on with JCPenney 10 or 15 years ago, right? When they tried to yank all the coupons in one fell swoop and, you know, nearly put them under. Uh, nobody wants to be the JCPenney of higher education. So that's the private side. On the public side, some version of this is going on for a fair bit, right? You've got the 
lottery-funded scholarships to try to get people to and through college. So, you know, the Hope Scholarship in Georgia was one. You only need a 3.0 grade point average to get a little money out of those programs. But then you have really interesting places like the University of Alabama. And when their subsidy was cut from the state legislature 10 or 12 years ago, they went like full bore on merit aid. And basically what they did is they jacked up their out-of-state tuition to the moon, like to $60,000 or something crazy all in. They started marketing the hell out of their beautiful campus and the beautiful people who go there and the awesome football team and the good time. And it worked like crazy. And all of a sudden, all these kids from Long Island and suburban Chicago and Texas were applying and they were giving away a ton of merit aid. And basically what they were doing is they were saying to these folks like, okay, you know, you apply, pay us, you know, $10,000 more net than what you would pay your flagship state university. We'll give you, you know, a 20 or $25,000 scholarship um, so that you can feel good about yourself and everybody wins. And everybody did win except say the state of Illinois university system, which was seen such a brain drain that the legislature created a $25 million pile of money to try and keep the smarter kids around and going to the flagship in Champaign-Urbana. You've also noted that the whole merit aid process tends to be underneath the table in a way. It's certainly complex. And that tends to disadvantage students who don't have very engaged parents to help them. Can you walk us through that? Sure. So again, we see tiering here. Um, at the public universities, the merit aid formulas and the rewards tend to be more out in the open. With private colleges, it's kind of like the Wild West. You know, schools that are a little bit more hard up for undergrads are transparent. Right. So, you know, if you look at Lake Forest College in Illinois or Wabash College in Indiana, their merit aid formulas are right there on their websites in the form of a grid. If you look at Whitman in Washington and the College of Worcester in Ohio, um, they will let you call them up in September and say, "Okay, here's what I got. Right. Three point eight GPA and an ACT of twenty nine. And what would you offer me? Right. And they'll basically do like a a pre-read of your application before you even apply and say, you can expect, you know, roughly accent merit aid, or maybe we're not going to give you anything at all. Sorry. Right. And so you have some sense of what might be waiting for you if you apply. And then the schools that you know, have super competitive, you know, free ride merit aid programs or only offer it to a, you know, a relatively low percentage of people, they're not going to tell you anything, right? And so you're trying to decide how to narrow your choices without having any idea, like literally within a six-figure amount, what you might pay if you were to get in. And there is no market like that anywhere in the United States of America. So we want to talk a little bit about loans, which I know are sometimes considered financial aid, which is a little odd to me. But if loans are part of the equation of paying for college, how much is reasonable to borrow? You know, we sometimes hear these rules of thumb about how much you should be comfortable borrowing for college. Is that a good way to think about it, to think about the student's subsequent potential salary? Or how should people sort of decide how much is too much to borrow for college? I actually think it's possible that we worry 
too much about this now. So 15 years ago, when private student loan lenders would still allow teenagers to sign for debt without a grown-up, you know, there were people who borrowed, you know, $100,000 for undergrad and got themselves into real trouble during the 2008-2009 recession. Nowadays, you cannot get yourself into too much trouble as an undergraduate unless a parent or someone else co-signs for the loan. So this is how it breaks down, right? Um, If you want to borrow from the federal government, that you can do as an undergrad without parental involvement. But if you are dependent, they generally will not let you borrow more than, you know, it's a low $30,000 amount. So why is that figure important? Well, when you go into repayment and you only have federal loans. There are all sorts of income-driven repayment programs that are available to you if you get into trouble, if you get sick, if you lose your job, right? So there's no reason that anybody who has only that debt needs to go into default or get into trouble. The people who get into trouble with federal loans nowadays are the people who start college but don't finish and have the debt but not the extra income to go with it and then fall out of the system and, you know, end up in default for years. You alluded to this before, but we are curious to know your take on parent loans. Are they ever a good idea if a parent is borrowing to pay for college? Doesn't that also suggest that maybe their own retirement assets aren't what they should be? Well, parents may borrow for college for any number of reasons, right? Maybe they don't want to take money or tie capital up, um, you know, when they've got a thriving small business that is also hungry for capital. And so I'm reticent to make too many rules of thumb for everyone. And also it's like, what are we talking about when we're talking about borrowing, right? There's the, there's the federal parent plus loan program, which is a, an easy place to borrow because there's very little underwriting. You could borrow from a 401k, you could yank money from your home equity. There's, you know, lot, lots of different ways to do this. So I'm reluctant to shame anybody who feels the need to do this or makes an agreement with their undergraduate that, you know, they're going to help repay the parental debt as well when they get out. I just think it's, you know, too personal of a decision. Um, but I do worry about the families, you know, that get to April without a clear framework. And then there is a very weepy teenager who wants nothing more than to go to the school that, you know, costs $20,000 more per year than the more prudent choice, who manages to persuade the parent to co-sign for private loans when the teenager says, I'll pay for it, I'll pay for it, I'll pay for it. And then, you know, they're 23 and they're not able to do it. And then you've got real problems on your hands. What do the data say about students working while in college? Does it depend completely on the child? The data say that, you know, if you don't do it much more than 10 or 15 hours a week, it should not affect your ability to have a successful undergraduate experience. And the colleges themselves often build it in, bake it into the financial aid formula, and the federal government supports it with work-study dollars. And so, you know, if you work much more than that, you're going to rob yourself of some of the experience, possibly, and also the time you may need to succeed. But that seems to be about the right number. If you had to redesign higher education, how would it look different than the system we have today? Well, I think the question we have to ask ourselves, right, is that Over the decades, we have come to the conclusion that it is in everybody's interest for kids to go to preschool, right? And that should not have to cost money. 
And then we made a decision that everybody should go to high school. And that should not have to cost people money. Now that the economic data are clear that college is you know, intensely beneficial, you know, both from a productivity perspective and, and an income earning perspective, and that's the message that we send um, at all kids, but particularly low income ones who are sort of striving to do better for themselves, why are we not finding a way to make it free? That's the question that I ask myself. And you know, what we're doing with our student loan system and the undergraduate debt that you know, dwarfs what the undergraduate debt is you know, in any other country, what we're doing is we're conducting like a giant decades-long economic experiment with no real um, controls, and teenage borrowers are the lab rats, right? So it's, you know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't sit right. There have been lots of sort of headlines over the years about whether student loan debt is sort of our next looming financial crisis. Where do you come down on that? I don't believe the student loan system is a bubble that's going to pop. But what I think people don't understand, and the Wall Street Journal flush some really interesting data out, um, is that now that more and more people are entering these income-driven repayment programs in the federal loan system, including people who, you know, borrow a couple hundred thousand dollars each for graduate school, for professional school, is that we are on a trajectory to cancel, to forgive, you know, something like a quarter of all outstanding student loans eventually. So why is that? Well, a component of the income-driven repayment program is that if you don't finish paying your debt, you know, after 20 or 25 years have gone by, the federal government will just wave it away. They'll say, okay, you know, you've done your duty. You're not going to have to do this. We're not going to take money from your social security account. Um, You're done, right? And the debt is forgiven. And at least under current tax rules, you have to pay taxes on it, right? So we're going to wipe a whole bunch of this money away one way or the other. And so, you know, that's part of what's kind of looming over this policy conversation. I mean, if 400 billion with a B, if 400 billion dollars in today's debt is eventually going to be dismissed, why are we putting ourselves through this, right? You know, should we think about what it would mean to cancel some debt now? And if so, um, for whom? You know, the problem with that is that it's not clear what kind of stimulus effect it would have, but it might help a lot of people's credit and maybe make it easier for them to make, you know, medium and long-term goals happen a few years earlier. In the book you wrote of the process of paying for college, but something isn't quite right in all of this. And with this book, I hope to help us all begin to make it right. What are the key changes you'd like to see introduced to make paying for college less of a headache and stressor for people? Well, I'd like more transparency from the institutions about precisely um, how they discount and for whom. And I want parents to be better educated about how the process works so they can find their way to value more readily. Because I think there are all sorts of schools that you know, just don't get on the radar of parents because either they're far away or they don't understand, say, that, you know, a private college with a pretty high list price is actually a really aggressive discounter. And that message just never gets conveyed because the schools don't advertise the average price paid. 
And, you know, it's never been completely clear to me why that is. I, I think they want to maintain some mystery and also the ability to continue to extract the full retail price from, you know, 10 or 8 or 6 or 4% of the undergraduate population. The farther that number falls, though, the greater chance there is that the people who are paying in full are going to feel like a sucker if that data comes out. And the schools don't really want to have to answer for that. Well, Ron, this has been such an illuminating conversation. Congratulations on the book, and thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View from Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast, and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.